Good morning. Oh, I'm a little, that was a little loud, but anyway. Good morning, and uh, if you would, take your Bibles and let's open them up to the book of Acts. If you're new with us, the book of Acts is uh, after the gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and we will be in Acts chapter 17. Before we read, I was sitting there and watching Nathan give a little update. I kind of had deja vu, like uh, it was, it was, you were getting ready to preach and getting ready to get up there, so it was good having you, it was a good feeling, um, but uh, good having you and Lauren and your precious family. They're staying at our house, and just so you know, we're having an open house at our house at 5.30, so any of you who, who uh, didn't get enough of Nathan, you can get more of them, and uh <laughs> And uh, at our house, and, uh, and and if you need directions, just ask, find me down front, or or ask somebody. They'll, they'll be able to point you uh, to where we live. So hopefully, you made your your way to Acts chapter 17. I don't want to read beginning in verse one, and we'll go down to verse 15. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on, the, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down, come here also. Jason has received them. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed. When they heard these things, when they had taken money and as, as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. (coughs) Now I'd venture to say, most of us want to live simple lives. By that I mean... Simply, you don't want to cause any trouble. You don't want to be an agitator. You don't want to be an instigator. 
Although some of you, I, I think you, you might want a little bit of that. But by and large, most of us <coughs> want to live trouble-free, keep the status quo. Let's live just a neutral life. Maybe that just looks like, hey, let's wake up in the morning. Let's go to work. Let's go to school. Let's come home, be with family or friends. On the weekends, let's relax. Let's just have cookouts. And then let's do it all again after Sunday church. However, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is not simple. In fact, your life is not neutral. Sometimes it's hard for us to kind of comprehend that. But everything that we've been doing in this service, from the songs we sang to participating in the Lord's Supper, and even if you look back to those of you who are Christians, and, and when you came forward and you professed Christ and you went through the waters of baptism... This is what we're saying. We have other loyalties. Or I have changed loyalties from this world to the world <clears throat> to come. And for those who are true followers of Christ, we're beginning to see that being a Christian, and not just saying you're a Christian, but actually being a Christian who believes the Bible and what it says and seeks to do what it says, whether you like it or not, you're not going to be able to just live a neutral life. You're not just going to have everything remain status quo. See, in one way, we're beginning to see the reality that this world increasingly views us as socially and politically dangerous. <clears throat> this is because we have conflicting messages, don't we? Everybody wants peace and security. We want that. But the means of getting it, we're actually on two different paths. There's the way of the world, and then there is the way of Christ. And so if you're a Christian today, we're actually swimming upstream. And as you're swimming upstream, you're going to be bumping into all the people who are just passively going with the flow. Unless, of course, you're going with the flow. Here in Acts chapter 17... We see Paul, Silas, Timothy's there too. And in verse 6, they are charged with turning the world upside down. However, from a biblical perspective, I mean, I don't think that's what you and I go around saying, right? Hey, we're here, we're Christians, we're here to turn the world upside down. But really, from a biblical perspective, it might be better to say we're, we're here proclaiming the message of how the world can be turned right side up. It just depends on how you're looking at what we're trying to do. But this is not accomplished, though. It's not accomplished through rivalry or disorder, but rather through the proclamation of Jesus as King and Savior of the world. We're just saying Jesus is better. I have no king other than Jesus. We're drawing a line in the sand in everything that we say and do. Brothers and sisters, what I want us to see, that if you and I are going to take the gospel and the message of Jesus seriously, our lives will not be simple. Rather, they're going to be disruptive. They're going to be disruptive. As one biblical commentator rightly put it, he says, even the preaching of the gospel itself is disturbing to the social and political status quo wherever it is taken seriously. Say it another way. There's going to be friction. 
If we're serious about the gospel, there is going to be friction as we seek to live lives under the reign of Jesus. So why is this message so controversial? You might say, hey, Chase, I don't see what you're talking about here. I don't see what's so controversial about talking about Jesus who's full of love and grace and he's died for our sins and he rose again. What is so controversial? I don't see the problem. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 17 is that the implications of that message are massive. And what I want to argue this morning is not only is the message controversial, but I want us to be okay with it. I want us not to be controversial in and of ourselves, but be okay that the message, that the allegiance that we declare as Christians, it's okay that it's controversial. This morning as we study Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that taking the gospel seriously may cause us difficulty. But here's the good news, some will be persuaded. Some will be persuaded to join us, seeing that Jesus is the only hope for true peace and security. We see here in in the very beginning of Acts chapter 17, Paul is passing through various cities and he arrives in Thessalonica. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Paul wrote two letters to the church in Thessalonica. We know them as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Well, this is the beginning of that church plant. This is the beginning of that ministry which we read uh, about in 1st Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a thriving city, and in fact, it was one of the more significant cities in Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece and Turkey. Thessalonica was a conservative estimate, say 40 to 60,000 people. Some, uh, some others say that it was up to 100-plus thousand people. It was also a port city, one of the largest ports in the area. And it was also right in the middle of the major route dividing east and west Macedonia. Therefore, all sorts of commerce and trade and and travel would go through Thessalonica. And as was Paul's routine, we see in verse 2, and as we have seen throughout the book of Acts, Paul, as was his custom, went to the synagogue, right? He went to preach Jesus the Messiah to Israel, to Jews. And he comes there and he proclaims, verses 2 and 3, that He argues from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now here's what I want you to notice. Notice that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. We are people of the book. Paul came in. Now when he's talking about scriptures at this point, we don't have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We don't have, actually, even the Gospels. We don't have the book of Acts. What he's talking about, he's opening up the, New Test- or the Old Testament. And he's opening it up, and he's explaining, and he's seeking to show and prove that it was necessary for the Messiah to die, which would have been a radical message. What do you mean? The, the Old Testament's expecting our king to come and die? They said, yes, but not only die, but rise again. So how did he do this? Let's go over to to Luke chapter 26 or 24. Go back two books. John, Luke. And Jesus does this very thing. 
Luke 24, and if you just look at, at verses 44 and following, <clears throat> Jesus is arisen. He's already, this is post-resurrection. He's walking with some of the disciples. <clears throat> and he says to them in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, that's all the prophets, and then the Psalms, the wisdom literature, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. Jesus says, Thus it is written. There are no verses that say that. There are no verses that say, oh, I'll, I'll find it in the Old Testament, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again. But yet Christ says it is written. How is he able to say that? How is Paul able to open up the Old Testament and say, hey, look, there's Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's what they're saying. We've seen this through Acts, but there's a pattern. In fact, Stephen gets killed for this message. Paul actually oversees his execution in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen worked from Abraham, and he went to Moses, or Joseph, Moses, and then David. And what they showed was that there's these patterns by which God is dealing with his people. Patterns by which you see someone go down and then is later exalted. Let's think about Abraham and Isaac for a minute. You know the story. Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. And right before he kill, was going to kill him, the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, Do not, I've provided an offering. But here's, here's what you might not have picked up on. The day that Abraham and Isaac went up the mountain was the third day. And so Isaac went up on that mountain on the third day as a dead man. And he came down alive. It was as if he experienced life from the dead. Think about Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and he was thrown into a pit. He was later sold into slavery and, and he was in a jail. But then later God rose him up and put him at the right hand of the king Pharaoh. Think of Moses who was a slave child he he came he was preserved through the waters like like Noah but he was drawn out of the waters and he was raised up into Pharaoh's household but then he is banished and exiled for 40 years out in the wilderness but he comes back as a conquering redeemer where did this Moses go but now he's here and then you think of David David was a man after God's own heart but yet he was a boy he was not one who you would have looked down the outside and said that's a king he was an unlikely king, and he is one who came up from nowhere and rose up to power and to rule. You might also be thinking of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord who was the son of David, was crushed for the iniquities of the people. It pleased God to crush the son. Psalm 16. There's a promise to David and to his descendants that his flesh would not see corruption from the grave. And so we're seeing through the Old Testament there's 
there's patterns, there's, there's hints that Jesus opened up the minds of the disciples to see these things were talking about me. And Paul is doing the very same thing. And he's doing this through careful attention and dedication to the Scriptures. And so here's where I want you and I to see this, that, that through Acts, the message that we proclaimed is rooted in the Scriptures. The message we proclaim is not culturally conditioned. It's not something that we come and bring out of our own imaginations, our own intuitions. No, it's drawn out of the text as we reason, we explain, and we show people the Christ from the Word of God. Now, you might be saying, Chase, I, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe the Lord hasn't gifted you in such a way that you're able to open up the Scriptures and do it at that kind of a level. But I would venture to say that if you would start reading the Bible more often, you would have more to say. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that you're not able to read the Bible and that you're not able to just repeat what it says. See the, 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 the sarcasm there? Um, you can invite people to where it is happening you can bring them here and say, hey, you will hear the word of God opened up. That's our commitment as your pastors. We're going to open up the scriptures. If you're new with us, we just go on to the next verse. So next Sunday, we'll be in verse 16. And we'll just keep going along, okay? We're just opening up the scriptures, letting the word of God set the agenda. You can bring them to your Bible study. I think of Brandon Hill. He's got, his, he's got a Bible study that meets at his barber shop on every Saturday morning. And they bring people there. You can bring people to Bible studies, the women's Bible study. You invite friends and say, hey, we want you to come here and, and hear the word of God. Moms and dads, this is your task. This is our task to open up the scriptures to our children, to open them up. So you, you better learn how to do something. Are you at least reading the scriptures to them? Because this is where the power is. This is what's going to save your children's life. This is what's going to ensure that your kids do not just go along with the flow. Because if you're not talking about Jesus now, they're not going to want Jesus later. If they don't see you committed to the local church, they're not going to be committed to the local church. If they don't see you worshiping and loving Jesus, they're not going to worship and love Jesus. committed to the word of God. Now he says, hey, Paul says, the Christ must suffer. Well, who is this Christ? Well, he says at the end of verse 3, this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Christ. So now he's bringing it a little more application. He's saying, hey, I'm not just talking in general, there's a Christ to come who's going to die and rise. I'm talking about Jesus. And chances are he preached a very similar message that Peter did. He says, the one whom you crucified. Now you're starting to see the temperature probably go rising up in the room. Because this isn't, hey, this is just my message and you can take it or leave it. No, it is the message. And unless you believe, you will likewise perish. And so Jesus is Lord and Christ. P Peter says it this way in Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, that means master, ruler and Christ that means king deliverer this Jesus whom you crucified so if Jesus is the Christ if he's the ruler if he's the Lord that means when we talk about him we're telling the world you need to submit to him 
That goes for us too, by the way. We submit to the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ. And it says here that, that Paul reasoned with the scriptures for three Sabbaths. That's three Saturdays. That's all he got. Likely Paul was there for three to six months in Thessalonica, but he only got three shots at it before he was run out. So what else was he saying that later leads to just a massive riot? We find out from the book of Thessalonians, he preached elsewhere. He probably went out of the synagogue after those three Sabbaths, and he, he was in the marketplace, and he's sharing Christ, and he's, he's proclaiming this message. We see in verse 4 that, look, that some of them were persuaded. Well, who were these? A great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women of the city. So he was talking to a, a, a vast variety of people. So what was he saying to them? And I want you to look with me in 1 Thessalonians, because Paul reflects on his time there. He reflects on how it was a difficult time, how he was afflicted. Verse 6, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'm just going to highlight a couple of things that, that Paul talks about referring to the gospel that he preached. And in verse 9 of chapter 1, he speaks of Christ's lordship and that they turn from idols to serve the true and living God. So if they turn from idols, that means Jesus, Paul was preaching, you must turn from your idols. Now this is where it gets controversial. Idols weren't just things you had in your house that were private things. The Greco-Roman world was full of idolatry, and one in particular was named Caesar. And he would have statues of himself, and you were to show reverence to the statues. And if you didn't, guess what you were? A traitor. And you were to be killed. Turn from your idols. There's another king. And his name's not Caesar. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, And to wait for his son, that's Jesus, the son of God from heaven, who was raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It gets more interesting. Do you know what Caesar called himself? The son of God. So when Paul comes to town and he says, Jesus is the son of God, that is rival. Caesar's not king. He's not the divine representative. Jesus is, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, he delivered us from the wrath to come, which means they will not. Oh, that's not like, like that happy message that everybody loves, right? Now it's starting to get a little bit more intense. Chapter 2, verse 12, he's going to come, and he's establishing his own kingdom in glory. Look in chapter 5, verse 13. Paul's talking about Jesus' return. And he says in verse 3, and he quotes what people are saying of the day. While people are saying there is peace and security. Is that not the message that we hear all the time? Hey, vote for me. I've got peace and security for you. 
Hey, everything's fine. Everything's okay. Look, if you just do what I say, and you got a host of political um, officers who will, who will give you a hope to offer. While people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Well, there's, in some sense, maybe the, the false illusion that they can provide peace and security, but what they do not realize is the Son of God is returning. And so Paul is preaching about the return of Christ, the rule of Christ. And if you were to read 2 Thessalonians, he talks about a man called the man of lawlessness, who is the Antichrist. And he aligns him with the work of Caesar. And he says, and you know who that work is with? The activity of Satan. And he says, he's going to get up and promise you everything you want. And many will be deceived. But there is a greater king whom our loyalty is to, and his name is Jesus Christ. You start preaching that type of message, and you're going to have problems. No wonder you're going to be viewed socially and politically dangerous. If someone like Paul starts preaching that kind of crazy message that there is a God who's coming, and if you do not bow your knee to him, he's going to bring wrath and judgment upon you if you do not repent from your idols, and not only your idols, but your sexual immorality. I mean, you can already tell that message is not going to sell. And here's what I want to encourage us with or at least challenge us with, is it's not just Paul's message, but it's our message. If we're opening up the scriptures and reasoning with people. It doesn't mean that we're jerks about it. doesn't mean that we're ugly about it. But it does mean that we, we preach what the word says and we don't edit it. You might be saying, well, I, that, 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 that's not going to go well. Well, it didn't go well for Paul either. Look here at the, this response. Come back to Acts chapter 17. Look at this response. As people believe, and we already saw that some do, right? Some were persuaded. As people believe the message, what happens? Again, one commentator is really helpful with this. He says, accepting the lordship of Christ will mean new priorities, new loyalties for those who became disciples. It would lead to the transformation of personal relationships, business and personal ethics, social structures and ambitions, new attitudes towards other religions, and changed ways of relating to Caesar and his representatives. In other words, if you become a Christian, your life's going to change. You've got new loyalties that changes every area of your life. And if you have a big enough group, you start having an impact in the area. You start changing things. And notice that the change does not come because Paul came in and led a protest and a riot and got everybody in a tizzy and he got changed. No, he came in and he started off with a little group in the synagogue and he started reasoning. And he probably came out of there and he started going to the marketplace and he began talking to people. He began reasoning with them. Hey, let's get a cup of coffee. I'd love to tell you, you, know, you know, about this book. And slowly he begins persuading people. And that's when the trouble starts. Look what happens in verse 5. Although some were persuaded, but verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. 
Now, we think of jealousy and we think, ooh, I want to be like you. That's not really what that is talking about. That word jealous in the, in, in the Bible everywhere, it means zealous. It means eager to do something. And in particular, Paul was zealous, he would say, for the traditions of his fathers. And what that zealousy lead him to? Persecute the church. Here's what that means. It means we got somebody who's threatening us, who's threatening the status quo, and we want to eliminate them. We got this man coming in telling us he is actually proclaiming the true Messiah, and if you're going to be part of God's true people, you must believe him as well. And some of our people are going after him. We got to put an end to this. And so they become zealous, and you see how it works. They take some wicked men of the rabble. Well, that's an interesting phrase. Wicked men of the rabble. Here's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the marketplace. Ever been in a big city where there's a bunch of people congregating? We, we witness this when we're in Haiti a lot. You, usually when I bring somebody for the first time, they say, what, what do all these people do? Absolutely nothing. They just sit around on their motorbikes and they just sit there. And if you drive through enough, you'll see a fight over there. You'll see something going on. And it just kind of is chaos because nobody's got anything to do except be hot and angry. And so what happens? They're zealous. They want to stamp out this movement. And so they go and they find someone to join them. You've heard the phrase, maybe the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Well, this is what takes place. Let's go to the marketplace. We'll get these people up in a tizzy and then we'll take care of this. There's probably a sinister element to it. Probably in a sense they could get them all worked up and let them do the dirty work. Because they could easily be persuaded. But anyway, they, they, the world will bind together when we begin preaching this message. I also want you to see the irony here. Look at what they charge them with. They charge them in verse 6 as men who have turned the world upside down. But notice in verse 5 that they got wicked men from the rabble and formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Who's the one starting the riot? We see this all the time. Why do you Christians cause all this trouble? Uh, we're just talking about Jesus. Hey, why do you all always bring up the same things? Because well, that's what you ask us about. You guys just won't mind your own business. Hey, I'm just trying to run a business. Sorry. And there's always, you, got, you see the same things happening here. You guys are causing trouble, but yeah, you're the one who called the authorities and made a lawsuit and got everybody up on, on CNN and Fox News in, in, in protesting. We're, we're just trying to follow Jesus. At least I hope that's what we're trying to do. And so they get everybody in an uproar. And what do they do? Look at the end of verse 5. After they got the city in uproar, they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. They shout, they make these accusations, namely that they are breaking the law. Now you understand why they're saying hey, they're breaking the decrees of Caesar. They're saying there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And what they do? They set Jason and the rest. Notice that's the rest of the church, maybe the believers. 
They put them on bond and say, all right, if you pay enough money, we'll let you go. And they do, and they release them. Somebody be saying, hey, this isn't worth it. <laughs> I don't want that type of trouble. I want to give you some good news here. I want you to see that, that some believe, though. In God's grace, some believe. Look again in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. It means they thought about what was being said. And we saw last week with Lydia that looks like the Lord opening their heart. And they believed. Go on to verse 11. Paul's been driven to Berea. Trouble led him out of Thessalonica. But notice we see here now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So what does true belief look like? It looks like loving the scriptures. It looks like loving the word. It looks like coming and saying, I want to examine these things. It's also a good principle here. Don't take my word for it. Study the scriptures for yourself. Just because I get up here and say it, I always got a lot of things to say. But are you examining the scriptures to see if these things are so? I want to persuade you as I walk through this text and show you this after that and show you that these things are coming from the Word. I want you to see something else. What true belief looks like. Come up to verse 4 again. Not only were they persuaded, but what did they do? They joined Paul and Silas. What we're seeing here is a line in the sand. And what it looked like them joining Paul and Silas, we find out because Jason, the believer at this time, likely received them into his home. And this is where the Christians began meeting in Thessalonica. And this is where the city authorities and, and the group, they come and they go to Jason's house and they're looking for Paul and Silas. Now maybe you're thinking, hey, that's, you know, Jace, you, you pastor guys, you, you can do this, you can get real serious about the gospel. You can go preaching and teaching, and, and hey, you can have all the trouble you want. You, you get up there and you preach those messages, you drop a little grenade, gospel grenades elsewhere, you know, you do all that. I'm just going to sit here every Sunday, and then I'm going to leave and mind my own business and live a simple life. Well, here's what I want to kind of awaken you to. That if you are around us, you're associating with us. Paul's the one who's preaching and causing the trouble and Jason's the one who's taken to court. So you can try to stay out of the mess of the gospel all you want, and pretty soon you're going to have to make a decision. Do I want to be a part of this mission, or do I not? And notice, the believers are fully on board. Jason has received them, verse 7. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. What does that mean? That was not that, hey, guys, you're causing trouble. Get out of here. Boom, booted them out. That looks like, hey, we've made arrangements for you in Berea. Here's some money. Hey, we're, we're supporting you guys. We know somebody in Berea. They'll take care of you. Just give them our name. Tell them Jason sent you. We, we got you. We'll be praying for you. When, you. when things cool down here, you come back. Okay, sends Paul and Silas. They got a better reception here, but verse 13 says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed, that's the problem, by the way. 
That's what we want our controversy to be, not us as individuals. But because we proclaim the word of God, they came to Berea and they started agitating and stirring up the crowds again. And so what did these believers do? Immediately they sent Paul off on his way to the sea. And later we see that they, care, they, they, they followed along with him until Athens. And what does that look like? Hey, here's a, here's a ticket to get on a boat. Here's some means. We know somebody in Athens who can take care of you, and, and, and we're, we're going to protect you. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say that following Jesus looks like being part of his church. And not just showing up on Sunday, but being part of the mission. Saying, I'm on board. That might not mean that you're the one preaching and teaching and sharing all the gospel. That means you're supporting those who do, though. And you're saying, hey, I'm with you. We're one. We're coming back from Haiti. I'm on the plane. We're, we're coming in from Miami. And I sit on the plane. I'm trying to get an exit row because I want some leg room. But I don't get it, which is fine. We almost miss our flight because somebody thought we could eat at Fridays before we get on board, but that, that, that person was wrong. That person was me. Uh, <clears throat> I get on, I'm eating, doing my thing, and I look to my right, and there is Dr. Bruce Ware from Southern Seminary. Some of you know that name. He's a professor of theology, and we get talking. He's like, Chase, what are you doing? And I'm like, I've been on a mission trip, coming back. What are you doing? Same thing. And he was coming from Venezuela, and before that, coming from China. So he'd been on a, uh, quite an adventure, and it was on his way home. And we began sharing kind of some of the stories of what had been going on. But one thing struck out to me. He said, well, was, he began sharing that he was sharing the gospel with a couple who belonged to the Communist Party in China. And he began opening up the scriptures, he said, and they were eating it up. And they told me, we believe. But they said, we have one question. Do we have to tell anybody? He told me that he said to them, you already know the answer. Brothers and sisters, you have to tell people. You're not going to be able to follow Jesus and just kind of keep, keep with the status quo. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words before men, I will be ashamed of him before my heavenly Father who sits in heaven. And so what we see here is the gospel ministry, yeah, there might be those that are on the front lines preaching and teaching, but as Christians, we're turning the world upside down <laughs> just by association. And here's what I, I don't want you to flee. I want you to embrace it. I want you to be a part. I want you to support it. Let's go upstream together, okay? Let's pray, and we got time for, I think, a couple of songs. Dear Lord, your grace is abundant. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who, who not only profess with our tongue that we believe in Jesus Christ, but we are committed to the mission. That we realize that we can't just be neutral in this world. That when we say we believe in the Lord Jesus, that we believe you're Lord. That we believe you're the King. And that we are telling people about your coming so that they can enjoy the, the security of peace and hope in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for our city. I pray for those conversations that, that we're going to have this week 
as we leave this place, rubbing shoulders with neighbors, coworkers, the person in the line at the grocery store, um, those conversations that are yet to happen, Lord, I pray that you would give us strength, boldness, whether it's to share the gospel then or whether it's just to say, hey, start up a conversation and, and see where it goes. Lord, I pray that you would use us to bring many and that you, they would be persuaded to join us. That's our prayer. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing hallelujah, what a Savior.